Before we start the program, I want to introduce you to an event that's coming up this August. The Loma Linda Institute of Worship is offering a worship leadership certificate to help leaders and pastors take their congregation's worship experience to the next level. This August 9-12 through 12 event will include presenters Randy Roberts, Adriana Pereira, Nicholas Zork, Wayne Buckner, Richard Hickam, and more, and provide the opportunity to perform on stage with Steve Green and the Heritage Singers. Come sing, pray, write new music, share testimonies and resources, and grow together with like-minded worship leaders from across the world. Go to LLIW.net to register. Welcome to the Loma Linda University Church Sermon Podcast. We hope you will be blessed by the message. There are many realities many things that I have much enjoyed in pastoral ministry. But nothing more than, maybe many things as much as, but nothing more than the privilege of officiating at weddings. It's such a great moment in a couple's life, in a family's life. The joy and the love, the romance, the excitement that's in the air is hard to match. I've seen a lot of things at weddings over the years. I've seen kids take over the service. They're just supposed to come down the aisle, but they have minds of their own. I've seen parents trying to control those kids that are taking over the service, trying to look like this is natural, but you can sense within them a tightness and embarrassment. I've heard the prayer in ways that surprisingly did not remind me of Andrea Bocelli and Celine Dion. (laughs) I've watched beads of perspiration dotting the brows of both brides and grooms. I've watched grooms cry through the, through the vows. I've seen a bride faint. In fact, on that front, it was a beautiful service, beautiful bride, handsome groom. We were kind of packed into this venue, and, and it was hot. It was stuffy. Now, I know that many of you will disbelieve me because I tend to be hot a lot of the time, but it was really hot. We got to the point of the service where it was vows time and the couple had turned to face each other and they were holding each other's hands and I was going through the vows with him. And I noticed that she was kind of starting to lean a bit toward him. She had been holding his hands. Now she was grabbing his wrist and now she was grabbing his forearms and she was getting closer and closer. It's like, wait, 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 wait. Honeymoon hadn't started yet. Uh, We still got people here. But, But suddenly she just kind of collapsed into him just fell into his chest. He caught her, held her up with his arms. The violins played. The angels sang. It it was a beautiful moment. And so he carried her, and he laid her down, and they got her some air. And I immediately went to the person representing the venue. I said, you got to get some air in here. It is way too stuffy in here. So finally, after a few moments of being able to come to and get things together, we were back up again, ready to go again. And then I thought of something. I looked at her and I said, "Um, do you know that he just said, I do to you? Do you remember that? She said, no. (laughs) I said, then we're doing that again. So for the only time I've done it, I did vows with him a second time. And this time she heard the I do's and he heard the I do's. It had to happen that way. Because those two words form the foundation of all that is to come. It is the promise, the vow, the commitment. I've told couples over the years, be sure you get those words in the right order. Don't say, do I? 
Say, I do. <laughs> it undergirds everything. In other words, it's one person's, one spouse's way of saying to the other spouse, you have my heart. And if that person has your heart, they have it all. In fact, in the days to come, that couple will go out. They will move into a new place, a house, an apartment. They will bring in the furniture. They will hang the pictures on the walls. They will set up housekeeping. And all the joy and all the excitement that comes with that can only happen if they have each other's hearts. I think that's the question that God asks us. Do I have your heart? Asks it in many different ways throughout the pages of this book. There are many different places that we could turn to to see that featured. We could turn to the words of Jesus who, when asked about the greatest commandment, said the greatest commandment is this, love the Lord your God with all your heart. Starts right there. We could look at other teachings of Jesus. Where your treasure is there will your heart be also. And many others. We could turn to the Old Testament. We could turn to the old wise man who said, Be careful to guard your heart well, because out of it are the issues of life. There are many places we could turn and find the Scripture essentially asking us that question. God saying, Do I have your heart? But we're going to turn to a specific place. I've been wanting to turn to this place and have this conversation for some time now. It was a conversation that I thought we ought to have this conversation as a church as our new building opens. It's a, a critical time in our mission and our ministry. It's easy to think now that we have this and all the wonderful things that it brings, and it does. It may be easy to overlook deeper matters. Now, then came COVID, and suddenly the opening of the building wasn't so even and just on one date, and people weren't here, and it got kind of mixed up. And so now we're having this conversation starting today and for the next two Sabbaths, three Sabbaths all together. And we're going, of all places, to a book that I know I have never preached a series from. I'm not even sure I've ever preached a sermon from, to be honest, because it's a strange book written, with all due respect, by a weird man. Old Testament book called Ezekiel. Ezekiel. Contemporaries Daniel and Jeremiah, we've spent time there, but not with Ezekiel. And when I say, bit of a strange book, bit of a weird man, I'm not just saying that. Just spend some time with Ezekiel, and you'll run into some very bizarre things. If you can get past all the symbolisms, the wheels within wheels, and God and his fury, and all the cataclysmic destruction, and all the rest that happens in Ezekiel, to encounter Ezekiel himself, then you say, have mercy. Who is this man? This man who, in the interest of ministry, will shave his head to get a point across, will, will lie on one side and then the other, will, will, will do the strangest kind of things, will eat while he's shaking all over just to symbolize what's coming up ahead, will refuse to mourn for his wife, will get into a thing with God. This is in the Scripture. Over whether and what kind of 
fuel he should use for the fire God has asked him to make? Should it be human excrement or cow dung? Ezekiel. No wonder we haven't gone to Ezekiel. It's a strange book with a weird author. But if you stay with it, you suddenly realize that a portrait of God emerges that is quite stunning. So that's where we're going. We're going to Ezekiel for three weeks. Today we begin with one of his first visions. It's a long vision. It's four chapters long, chapters 8 to 11, and we're going to read every word. No, we're not really. We're not going to read every word, but I am going to give you the highlights, the overview of what the vision is. Chapter 8 begins with God saying, this is why what has happened to you, the destruction that has happened, has happened. Chapter 8. Chapter 9, God's response to the way Israel has been unfaithful to him. That's a difficult chapter to read. If you go home and read it this afternoon, remember, it's a vision, a vision. Okay? Chapter 10, God leaves the temple, leaves Jerusalem, so that by the time the chapter is over, the land and the temple are bereft of the presence of God. And then finally, the fourth part, chapter 11, God's dream. God's dream for his people in the future. So we're going to read two parts. We're going to read the first chapter. We're going to read why what happened to Israel happened. And then we'll read a much shorter piece a bit later. So here's the scene. Ezekiel is gathered with the elders of Judah. They're sitting in his house in Babylon. He's in exile. They are some 1,700 miles from Jerusalem. And while he is there, while they're having this conversation, he is propelled into vision. We don't know what they were talking about, but we can imagine because of what the vision said. We can imagine that as they were sitting there talking, they were asking questions like, why are we in exile? Why are we here in Babylon? Was it really all that bad? Did God overreact? Do we really deserve this? We can imagine that they would be, have been asking questions like that, and suddenly he is propelled. And I use that word advisedly. He is propelled into vision. I want to read what happens. This is God's explanation of why they are where they are. Now, I've chosen deliberately to read it from the message paraphrase. I normally wouldn't do that, but I want to do it today because the language is so much more accessible. So here we go, Ezekiel, the eighth chapter. In the sixth year, in the sixth month, and the fifth day, while I was sitting at home meeting with the leaders of Judah, it happened that the hand of my master God gripped me. When I looked, I was astonished. What I saw looked like a man, from the waist down like fire, and from the waist up like highly burnished bronze. He reached out what looked like a hand and grabbed me by the hair. The Spirit swept me high in the air and carried me in visions of God to Jerusalem, to the entrance of the north gate of the temple's inside court, where the image of the sex goddess that makes God so angry had been set up. Right before me was the glory of the God of Israel, exactly like the vision I had seen out on the plain. He said to me, Son of man, look north. I looked north and saw it. Just north of the entrance loomed the altar of the sex goddess Asherah that makes God so angry. Then he said, Son of man, do you see what they're doing? Outrageous obscenities and doing them right here. It's enough to drive me right out of my own temple, but you're going to see worse yet. He brought me to the door of the temple court. I looked and saw a gaping hole in the wall. He said, Son of man, dig through the wall. 
I dug through the wall and came upon a door. He said, now walk through the door and take a look at the obscenities they're engaging in. I entered and looked. I couldn't believe my eyes. Painted all over the walls were pictures of reptiles and animals and monsters, the whole pantheon of Egyptian gods and goddesses being worshipped by Israel. In the middle of the room were 70 of the leaders of Israel, with Jazaniah, son of Shaphan, standing in the middle. Each held his censer with the incense rising in a fragrant cloud. He said, Son of man, do you see what the elders are doing here in the dark, each one before his favorite God picture? They tell themselves, God doesn't see us. God has forsaken the country. Then he said, you're going to see worse yet. He took me to the entrance to the entrance at the north gate of the temple of God. I saw women sitting there weeping for Tammuz, the Babylonian fertility god. He said, have you gotten an eyeful, son of man? You're going to see worse yet. Finally, he took me to the inside court of the temple of God. There between the porch and the altar were about 25 men. Their backs were to God's temple. They were facing east, bowing in worship to the sun. He said, have you seen enough, son of man? Isn't it bad enough that Judah engages in these outrageous obscenities? They fill the country with violence and now provoke me even further with their obscene gestures. That's it. They have an angry God on their hands. From now on, no mercy. They can shout all they want, but I'm not listening. Wow. Space by space, step by step, Ezekiel is moved to the inner sanctums of the temple, those places where a holy God said, this is my space where I meet with you. This is for us, our relationship. And time and again, Ezekiel sees that they are deeply involved in the worship of the obscene fertility gods of the nations around them. Understand this had a, almost a magnetic, diabolical hold on Israel. Part of the reason why, no doubt, was that in the worship of these fertility gods, the ancient mind said, in order to incite them to fertility, to fertility of our crops and our lands and our flocks and our herds, there has to be coupling sexually with the gods, the, uh, pardon me, the priest and the priestesses of these gods. And so God in vision is saying to Ezekiel, look at the obscenity that is happening in my house. Have you seen enough, son of man? So I tried to think, what would make us understand more deeply how God feels? Enter more deeply into his emotions. What if we were to take a couple, a couple who's been at the wedding altar in a year, two, five, ten years later. Let's say the husband comes home. He enters his house, and he hears from the bedroom sounds he recognizes. He starts striding in that direction, but as he does so, walking through the living room, walking down the hallway, he suddenly realizes that all over the walls of his house are pictures of another man holding his wife, kissing his wife, hugging his wife. Before he ever gets to that door, he is filled with anger. 
Because to respond to the violation of the heart and soul without feeling anger is not love. Maybe a lot of other things. So when you read Ezekiel 9, understand God responds because it matters to him that he has lost his people's heart. All through these four chapters, the underlying reality is the breaking of the covenantal relationship. It's as though a plaintive God is asking his people, do I have your heart? Have I lost your heart? Have I lost your heart forever? I went back this week and watched it again. Watched it two or three times. It's hard to believe it's been 20, 25 years ago. But there she was. They called her the world's princess. Elegant, bright, articulate. By this point in her life for Princess Diana, things were crumbling around her. The royals were not happy, to put it mildly. Her marriage was coming unraveled. And it was then that the British journalist Andrew Morton sat down and interviewed her. He asked her, do you think you'll ever be the queen? And she said, no. Why not? And she explained some elements in that relationship between herself and the royals. But she did say, honestly, I just want to be the queen of people's hearts. The question, I think, had to be asked, and Morton asked it. He said, your marriage. Do you think Mrs. Parker Bowles had anything to do with what has happened? And in an answer that would go around the world, with dignity and class, she said, well, there have been three of us in this marriage, so it's been a bit crowded. And then she looked down at her lap and you could sense the emotions brimming close to the surface ever dignified, ever elegant. But beneath that is the question of Ezekiel's God. Have I lost your heart? Have I lost your heart? Because once you lose the heart, the life follows. In the same way that once you have the heart, the life falls. And so God gives Ezekiel a prophetic, a visionary glimpse into the reality of why Israel is where it is and why what has happened has happened. And we read that and we're horrified, we're stunned, we stagger backward and we say, but what has that to do with us? We, 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 we don't have the fertility gods on our walls. We're not worshiping at the altar of Asherah. What has that to do with us? 
We don't practice idolatry. Do we? I don't think that the definition of idolatry given by St. Augustine could ever be improved upon. St. Augustine said idolatry is worshiping what should be used and using what should be worshiped. That's idolatry, worshiping what should be used and using what should be worshiped. In other words, idolatry in our day and time would look like worshiping things that we are given by God richly to enjoy, but making them ultimate. We may not, we may not kneel down in the garage to that beautiful car, but the way we feel about it, the way we treat it, or to that dress, or to that home. Idolatry, said Augustine, worshiping what should be used. One example, just one. Listen to the words of the writer James Bryan Smith who writes this. Neurologists once scanned the brains of people of faith as they recalled and re-experienced the times they felt close to God, either in prayer, worship, or solitude. Then they exposed the same people to stained glass, the smell of incense, icons, and other religious images that connect people to God. The same specific area of the brain, called the caudate nucleus, lit up in all of these people when they felt connected to God. The caudate nucleus is not a God spot, just the part of our brain that is activated when we feel connected to the divine. It gets even more interesting. The neurologist similarly tested another group, but this time exposed them to material possessions. When they showed images of products that were tied to cool brands, the exact same area of the brain lit up. The neuroscientists discovered that people who bought certain items experienced the same sensations as those who had deep religious experiences. Martin Lindstrom observes, when people viewed images associated with the strong brands, the Apples, the Harley-Davidsons, the Ferrari, and others, their brains registered the exact same patterns of activity as they did when they viewed religious images. Bottom line, there was no discernible difference between the way subjects' brains reacted to powerful brands and the way they reacted to religious icons and figures. You know that rush you get, that good feel you get when, when, when you buy and hold in your hands that new iPhone, that new dress, when your hands wrap around the stem of that new golf club. It's just kind of a rush. Caught eight nucleus. You were wired for God. Is there anything wrong with those things? Obviously not. As long as we can walk life with Augustine, remembering we worship what's meant to be worshipped and we use what's meant to be used. Don't get those two confused. Sky Jathani, a blogger, speaker, writer, says his daughter came home, kindergartner, 
came home from kindergarten with a homework assignment. The parents were to try to find out how many brands, how many logos the kindergartner could recognize. And so he started with his daughter. Lego, check. Jello, check. Disney, check. Child said, That's IKEA. <laughs> All these are check, check, check. Listen to how Jathani describes it. Should it scare me, he says, that my five-year-old had memorized more corporate brands than Bible verses or even names of relatives? What was your name? You're my uncle? Oh, okay. Also scary was the fact that no one taught her to identify logos. We didn't have corporate logo flashcard drills at home. Zoe internalized these logos simply by living for five years in a brand-saturated culture. This sort of brand marketing has been so effective that the average 10-year-old has already memorized between 300 and 400 brands. When these children become adolescents, each with an average of $100 of disposable cash to spend every week, they will select from these brands to construct their identities, identities they can eat, drink, smoke, drive, play, ride, and wear. The spiritual value of shopping is not lost on marketers. Douglas Atkins, author of The Culting of Brands, When Customers Become True Believers, states plainly that brands are the new religion. Anything inherently wrong with a brand? No. Just telling you who they are, what you can expect, what they stand for. But when we allow that to invade the personal, private spaces in which only God is to be welcomed. Welcome Ezekiel. And so God gives Ezekiel a vision. This is what is wrong. The next chapter, this is what God does about it. If you read it, remember it's a vision. And then in 10, God leaves, leaves behind the temple where his presence had been. But God's not done yet. He has one more thing to tell Ezekiel. This is in chapter 11. He is going to tell Ezekiel, Ezekiel, this is my dream. This is what I yearn for, what I hope for. If you've ever wondered what God dreams about, maybe this is it. So this is what he says, Ezekiel 11, verse 16. Therefore, tell the exiles. This is what the sovereign Lord says. Although I have scattered you in the countries of the world, I will be a sanctuary to you during your time in exile. I, the sovereign Lord, will gather you back from the nations where you have been scattered. I will give you the land of Israel once again. I will bring you home, in other words. When the people return to their homeland, they will remove every trace of their vile images and detestable idols, and I will give them singleness of heart, an undivided heart, and put a new spirit within them. I will take away their stony, stubborn heart and give them a tender, responsive heart so they will obey my decrees and regulations. They will truly be my people, and I will be their God. That's what God dreams of. That's what he yearns for, to bring us together as his people, to be able to look at us and say, 
Does your heart belong to me? And we say, yes, God. Yes. In this private bedroom of our soul, no one else will be admitted, God. It's just you. Just you. I I dream, I yearn for a church that responds in that fashion. We're thankful for every blessing we've been given, every space, every building. But the deepest question we must ask is the question God asks us. Do our hearts belong to God? If they do, how do we know? And how does it show? You know, I've learned something over the years of marriage. I was thinking about this this week. Anita and I have been married for years, and um, over that period of those years, I have learned that there are things that would never have entered my life, things that I would not have paid attention to, would not have mattered to me that I have come not merely to enjoy, but to love. Because the one I love, loves that. Maybe one of the ways we know if our heart belongs to God is that we come to love the things God loves. Maybe that will tell us something deep. In fact, maybe a good question to ask that will make us uncomfortable is to ask, when Jesus was here, what did he love? You know what Jesus loved? Jesus loved broken people. He drew them to himself. Jesus loved to heal broken people. Jesus loved to draw next to him those that people like me, religious people, had pushed away. You don't belong here. People with questionable reputations, people with sordid pasts, people who weren't acceptable in the circles of the day. He loved them. Maybe I should ask, does my church love them? People who in the past have been pushed out, different socioeconomic status, different skin tone, a different sexual orientation, a different political persuasion, don't want them here. And Jesus says, I love them. I love them. Maybe we need to ask, do we love what Jesus loved? Maybe that's the best way for our church to show that our heart belongs to God. 
Does it call us to a high and holy ethical standard? Absolutely. In fact, in chapter 10, when the mark is put on the heads of those who will be protected and kept safe by God when the destruction comes, you know how they are described? God describes them by saying, they are the ones who weep at the things that break my heart. Those are the ones that are spared. So you want to be spared? Then pray for your heart to be broken by the things that break the heart of God. And pray to love the people Jesus loved. Because that's what happens when you give your heart away. You come to love what that person loves. That's my dream. A church whose heart is broken by the things that break the heart of God. A church who loves the people Jesus loved. A church that can say, thank you for our wonderful blessings. But God, in the sanctuary of our souls, it's just you. Gracious God, Teach us to be grateful for the blessings we do enjoy. Not to spurn them, not to demean them, but to realize that every good and every perfect gift comes from above, from the Father of lights. Just teach us perspective to worship what is meant to be worshipped and to use what is meant to be used. Lord, our hearts are yours, just yours. Let these hearts be broken by what breaks your heart. And let us love whom you love. In Jesus' name, amen. Find more podcasts, videos, church events, and how you can support the Loma Linda University Church at lluc.org.